This last year, Noah and I were reading at bedtime a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Raise your hand if you've read that book before, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, it's one of seven in a series that C.S. Lewis has written called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in that series, there is a lion who portrays Jesus. Anybody remember what his name is? Aslan. Very good. Jessica, I heard that very loud and clear like a school teacher. That was good. Aslan. And in this particular scene, um, Lucy, the little girl, has been separated from Aslan for quite some time. And they're reconnected, and she begins to stare at his face. And this is the conversation that takes place between the two. Aslan says, welcome, child. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, Lucy asked. Aslan replied, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That's our hope that as we continue our journey through the book of John, as we read about the stories and the words and the actions of Jesus, that as a result of that, that Jesus in our minds and our lives, that he will grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And as God becomes greater, the inverse action takes place as well. And that is that we become less that our vision of God becomes greater. And as our vision of God becomes greater, we understand that His Word is truth and that whatever His Word says, that is what we are going to obey. That is the Word that we are going to follow for all of our life. Not our feelings. Not what the world says. Not even what we want the Word to say, but we will take God's Word and we admit that as His followers, we will adapt, we will conform our life around his word. Sadly, we live in a culture today in which we would rather take God's word, we would rather take Christianity, we would take Jesus and make him conform into our image, wouldn't we? We have this Americanized view of Jesus, this 2019 view of Jesus. We've got to make him hip. We've got to make him cool. We've got to make him relevant. And then we'll, we'll follow that Jesus as long as he fits what we want him to be. But we know that our spiritual growth is directly related to the size of our vision of Jesus. Let me say that again. Our spiritual growth is directly related to the size of our vision of Jesus. There's a direct correlation there. If we want to become more like Jesus, and as followers of Jesus, that should be the goal of every single one of us, that our goal is that today and tomorrow we look more like Jesus than we did yesterday, then we must constantly have a bigger vision of Christ. Hopefully, if you were here with us last Sunday, we saw how incredibly powerful, how large, how mighty our God is, and that God, obviously, that Jesus is God. We looked at the first five verses of, of the book of John, John 1, 1 through 5, and we saw that this God of the universe who created all things, who holds all things together, who sustains the universe with what? The power of his word. This God who created 121 with 21 zeros behind it. He created that many stars. He's powerful. He's eternal. He's holy. And yet, at the same time, that powerful, eternal God, He knows and He cares about every single hurt, every single thing that you are going through and that you're experiencing today. I know that it sounds elementary, 
But if we, as, as followers of Jesus, if we could just grasp this one simple thing, if we could say, God, I hope that today that you're bigger in my life than you were yesterday. I hope that my vision of you is enlarged. If we could do that, imagine the difference that would have in our life. Imagine how much our faith, it literally would grow exponentially. And as a result of Christ becoming greater in our lives and ourselves and our, our desires becoming less and less, the result would be that we would have more joy. We would have greater purpose. We would understand that we desire Him more than anything that this fleeting world has to offer us. We would understand that we're wasting our time thinking that anything other than a relationship with Jesus Christ is going to give us a peace and a sense of satisfaction and hold us because we were created to be in fellowship with God the Father. And the way that we're in fellowship with God is through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. So after conveying that God is Jesus, as we saw in verses 1-5, through five, after understanding the power and the might of God, in verses 6 through 19, where we're going to be this morning, I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles if you have one. If not, there's a pew Bible in front of you. John chapter 1 will begin in verse 6 in just a moment. We're going to see that John's attention is going to turn from talking about Jesus being eternal and Jesus being with God and Jesus being God. And now we are going to be introduced to a character by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he comes and he has the privilege of being the very first one to testify about Jesus on earth. Now, just a quick aside before we jump into verse 6. Understand that when John mentions John, it gets kind of confusing because John's the author and he's going to be talking about John. He's not talking about himself. He never refers to himself as John in his gospel. So whenever he says John here, he's talking about John the Baptist, who we all know was the cousin of Jesus. So just understand that as we jump into chapter 1, verse 6. Look at, let's look at verse 6 through 8, the first three verses there. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So we see just in those first three verses that John, clearly that he was what? He was sent from God, that John was set apart now, how do we know that John was set apart? Next Sunday, we're going to see that, but I'll give you a preview there. There's, there's two ways that we know that John was set apart. The first thing we see is that actually in the very last book of the Bible, I mean, excuse me, of the Old Testament, there's prophesied that before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah comes, that there will be an Elijah-like prophet who will come and will usher in the beginning age of the Messiah on earth. We will see next week that John the Baptist, he is the fulfillment of that Elijah-like prophet who was prophesied in Malachi. We also know that John the Baptist's birth, it was miraculous. Remember, he had his parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and Zechariah was a priest. Again, I'm not going to go into detail here because that's next Sunday's message. But they were old. They never thought they could conceive. But the angel comes to them at Gabriel and says, you are going to give birth to a son and you are to, to name him John. So John the Baptist, he was, sent up, he was set apart from others. He was sent from God, and his mission was to prepare the people for the Messiah. Now, John's message was very simple. In fact, you could say here's what John's message was in four words. Repent from your sins. That was John's message. He went around saying, repent from your sins. We see this in Matthew's gospel. 
This is what it says. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But unfortunately, many people were confused about John's purpose. They were confused about who John was and what his role was when he was on earth. They, they treated him as if he were the Messiah. They followed him as if he were the true light. But understand that they, they, they confused John for who he was. They didn't understand his purpose, not because John confused them, not because his words were any way confusing. In fact, this is what he says about himself in Mark chapter 1. It says, And he, meaning John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's mission, and by the way, this is our mission as well. His mission was not to draw attention to himself. He was not trying to promote himself, but instead he was to be a witness to the Messiah who was to come. Another way to say it is that John's goal was to reflect the light and point people, like we talked about last week, that Jesus is the light of the world. His role was to reflect the light, to point people to the true light, which is Jesus himself. That's why I get so frustrated when I see some of these preachers on TV and they're all about themselves and they want the attention and they want the glory for themselves. Shame on us if as a church, as if as a congregation, as if anyone in leadership, if we want the attention drawn to ourselves, if we do anything but reflect the light and point to the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. John had this tremendous privilege of being the first person to announce the Messiah being there on earth, that, that Jesus was here. We see that in a few verses down, John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day he, meaning John, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But sadly, many people in John's day they ignored this opportunity to a, a welcome this long-awaited Messiah. And what a tragedy to think that a lot of these were Jewish people, that there had been 400 years, remember, of silence that they had not heard from God. That many of these were priests. They, were, they, they had been to the temple. They had read the Scripture from the Old Testament. They knew they had read the prophecy that this Messiah was to come. But then when He is there in their midst, they miss it. They miss the fact that Jesus is standing there before them. Let's go ahead and look at verses 9 through 11. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now in John's gospel, John uses that word world almost 80 different times. And in this particular instance, when John uses that word world, he's referring to a group of people that chose to live apart from God. It was their choice. They knew, but they said, I'm going to make a deliberate choice to live apart from God. Now, it's an undeniable fact that ever since the birth of Jesus, that the majority of the human race, they have lived in separation from God. Many people, sadly, have never heard the gospel in their own native tongue. In fact, it's estimated that there are over 2 billion people who have never heard the gospel today. 
Let that soak in for a minute. Two billion people that don't have a copy of God's Word in his, their own language. Let me try to put that in perspective for you. That means that every day, 70,000 people die never hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church family, if that doesn't cause us to want to give more to missions, if that doesn't make us say that, man, there's nothing more that we can do with our life than to give and to go and to support our missionaries who are taking the gospel to every corner of the world so that everyone might have an opportunity to hear and understand and receive the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of my most sincere prayers that I, I pray on a regular basis for our church is that God would call out men and women from our own church. That God would raise up students in our student ministry, even children in our children's ministry, that they will grow up with a heart, with a passion, with a desire to lay everything on the line, to sacrifice everything, to take the gospel to every corner of the world because there's nothing more important than us sharing the gospel with others. May we continually have a heart for the lost. May we continually be burdened for those who are unreached in the world today that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we not take for granted the blessings that we have. I don't know how many copies of God's word sitting on our shelves today. And there are billions of people that don't have God's word. But understand, that's not the type of people that John's talking about when he refers to world here. He's not referring to those who have never heard. He's talking about those who have heard, who have seen the light of Jesus. But because they love their own sin, they don't want it exposed. Remember, we said that last week, that what does light do? Light exposes darkness. And why do they not want it exposed? Because they choose to live in darkness. Two chapters later, Jesus says this. He says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Let me give you a basic truth that's found in this passage this morning. And that is that everyone brought face to face with Jesus Christ is responsible to recognize him as the light of the world. Once you recognize that Jesus is the light of the world, once he has come into your life and you become a follower of Jesus, it should impact every aspect of your life. It should impact your decisions. It should, it should impact your conversation, your choices. You should see everything in a different light because now you see the world, you see your friends, you see your struggles, you see politics, you see everything through the light and the lens of the light of Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone rejected Jesus. Some responded to Jesus. They trusted him as Savior. And look what happened as a result. Look at verse 12. I, lo I love this verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now there's a danger there today to, to, of turning this phrase of receiving Christ into something less than what it really is today. You know that I get hung up sometimes on words and phrases. And one of those phrases that I just don't really like is people saying, well, you can just pray and ask Jesus into your heart. I don't want to get caught up in words, okay? The words are fine, but what I'm really concerned about, what is the meaning behind those words? My fear is that in an attempt to get as many people to escape the flames of hell, to get as many people into heaven, we have watered down or we have cheapened what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. We say, just pray this prayer and then you'll get out of hell free card. But that's not what the Word of God says. 
You will not find in God's word. Pray this prayer, live the way, any way that you want, and you will be a child of God. It's not found in the Bible. And one of my greatest fears, I'm just being completely transparent with you right now. One of my greatest fears as a pastor is wondering how many people sit in our pews day in and day out and they think that they are a follower of Jesus. They think that when they die, they're going to be face to face with Jesus because they walked an aisle, they signed a card, they joined a church. That's not what the Bible says. We must experience life transformation. Yes, it is a one-time decision in which we come face to face with our sin. We understand that our sin separates us from a holy God. We confess our sin to God. Then we repent of our sin and we choose to follow him every day of our lives. But those two words, those two phrases that's used in verse 12, to receive and to believe, they mean to continually, to continually place your trust in Jesus as the Son of God. It means that you recognize him as your Lord and the Savior of your sins. To receive Jesus, it's more than just intellectual head knowledge. It's not just understanding, okay, I know that He is the Son of God. It means that as a result of receiving Christ as your Savior, Jesus occupies first place in your thoughts, in your conversations, in your home life, and in all of your activities. And here's where it gets good. Ronnie, get ready. It's about to get better. Watch what happens. Watch what happens when we believe and receive Jesus' name. I'm going to read 12 again, then we're going to go into verse 13. This is what happens. When we do receive, when we do believe in Jesus, this is what happens. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here's verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, listen to this. We who were once dead in our sins, we who were enemies of God, we who were separated from God, when we trust Christ as our Savior and we confess our sins, we are brought near to God. We are brought into His family. We are adopted into His family and we become a child of God. Let that soak in for a second. Enemies of God, child of God, separated from God, brought near, no longer, no, no longer being worried about, do I have this relationship with him? Now I am adopted into his family. I am a child of God. You don't let anyone tell you who you are except from the fact that Jesus says, if you have trusted in me, then you are a child of the holy, mighty, powerful, loving God of the universe. And notice the two results that take place. When we receive Jesus, when we believe in the name of Jesus, two things happen. The first thing we see is that we are given a new relationship with God. It says that in the last part of verse 12. It says, He gave the right to become children of God. God literally adopts us into His family. In another one of John's letters, he puts it this way. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Listen to this next phrase. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. And friends, listen to me. If he has adopted you into his family, no one can take you out of his family. You can never lose your salvation if you have truly placed your hope and your trust and you have trusted Christ as your Savior. Don't think that you can lose something that you didn't gain on your own efforts. You gain salvation because of what Christ has done on your behalf. 
Jesus couldn't have made it any more clear when he says this in, in John chapter 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Here's the next phrase. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You talk about the security of the believer. It's right there. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one, you need to say it one more time, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Not only do we have this new relationship, the second result of trusting and believing and receiving Jesus is that we are given a new birth. Verse 13 says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When you trust, when you receive, when you believe in Christ, you are made into a new creation. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen to me closely on this one. No one inherits eternal life because of their family. You've heard the phrase before, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. What does that mean? That means that new birth, it only comes from receiving Christ personally, from you trusting Christ as your Savior. I cringe when I hear people say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. Nope, you haven't. Sorry. No one has been a Christian their entire life. There must be a time in your life in which you recognize your sin separated you from God. You confessed your sin. You placed your trust and your hope and your salvation in Jesus Christ, and you turned away from self and you turned towards Him. So let me pause right now and ask you that. Has there been a time in your life that you've confessed your sin, that you have called out and you have repented of your sin. Literally, you've turned a different direction. You have called out and saying, Jesus, I know that my sin separates me from you, but I know that because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on my behalf, if I place my hope and trust in you, then I know that I can experience this new birth. I don't care about your church background. I don't care what denomination you came from. I don't care about how good you are. I don't care how much money you gave away to the poor. Has there been a time in your life in which you have confessed your sins, repented of your sins, and trusted Christ for salvation? There's not a more urgent question that you can answer than that right now. My hope and prayer is that every single person in this room, that when you lay your head on your pillow tonight, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is my Savior, that I am a child of God and no one will snatch me out of His hand? If you don't, don't leave here without talking to me. Don't leave here without talking to someone. And don't leave with doubts. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you would have to flounder and wonder if you're a child of his or not. Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, every knee will bow one day. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My deepest prayer for you is that you will do it now before he comes again, because you will bow. You will confess. How, not, how about doing it now on your own? free will before he comes again. John verses four, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the o of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, verse 14, it's a pivotal verse in in what we call the prologue of John. And in this verse, we see the eternal God, the God of the universe. He's united and he becomes flesh. We sometimes call that the, the incarnation, a big fancy word. And that one phrase is that says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, let's pause for just a second. I want to look at that word dwelt. That word dwelt, it literally means pitched his tent. Now, if you were uh, familiar with the Old Testament, those who were reading this, they would immediately think of the tabernacle. And if you were here Wednesday night, you heard Roger talk about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was um, instituted by God as a place where God would come and he would dwell with man. Now, the tabernacle was instituted uh, by God before the temple. And so the children of Israel would literally carry this tent before them on their way to the promised land. They would set up this tent that was the tabernacle. And there was one special place within this tent where God would come and dwell with mankind. And that place was called the most holy place. Now, what's interesting about the most holy place is only one person was allowed to go and meet with God in the most holy place. And that was the high priest at the time. So don't miss the significance of what John is saying here in verse 14. In essence, what John is saying is the word became flesh and tabernacled, came and dwelt, came and he he, he came to be with us. See, we no longer have to go to the most holy place to be in the presence of God. The presence of God is no longer limited to just the high priest. But thank goodness, because of the grace of Jesus, because of the gift of Jesus, we can have communion with the most holy God because we have communion with God through the gift of Jesus, his son. But it goes even deeper than this. You see, when the Jewish people, when they looked upon the tabernacle, they saw uh, the glory of God, but it was, it was impartial. It was incomplete. But what we know and that John is saying in verse 14 is that when we see Jesus, we understand that Jesus came to earth as a man to dwell with men so that the glory of God is seen not partially, not incomplete, but we see God in his fullness. To see Jesus is to see God. And let's conclude with verses 16 through 18. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I love that phrase, grace upon grace. I'd encourage you to circle or underline that in your Bible. What does that mean? Friends, that means that we will never exhaust God of all the grace that he wants to pour out on us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God never runs out of pouring grace out on his children. And what is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor, which through Christ, God pours out on his people. May we never forget that we receive the grace of God, not because we deserve it, not because we earn it. It is unmerited. It is undeserving. But because of the gift of Jesus, for those of us who have trusted in the name of Jesus, he doesn't just give us a little bit. He lavishly pours, he liberally pours out his grace upon us that we can never run out of the grace of God. 
In the Old Testament, we know that Moses, he was known as the lawgiver. But we quickly realized that in our own sinful nature that we were incapable of keeping God's law. There was no way that we could um, live by the, by the letter of the law. So God, he designed the law as a way to demonstrate for us our need for a Savior. Put it another way. The purpose of the law is to reveal our need for God's grace, to reveal our need for his forgiveness. And praise God in verse 17, John tells us that grace and truth that we needed, they come through Jesus. I love the way Paul puts it in Galatians. He says, therefore the law, I love this phrase, became our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Isn't that great? The purpose of the law was to be our tutor, and the tutor points us to who? Jesus. The law points us to the fact that we are powerless and that we cannot save ourselves apart from the grace of Jesus. And in verse 18, John says that no one has ever seen the person of God at any time. Throughout all time, one of the desires of the people of God is that they would be able to see God the person. Remember the story of Moses? He wanted to see God. What did God do to him? He hit him in the cleft of the rock. And God passed by him. And all that Moses saw was his backside. And what happened as a result? His face began to glow, began to radiate. That He had to put a veil in front of his face. In the New Testament, a guy by the name of Philip, he asked Jesus himself, he says, hey, can I just see God? I just want to look at his face. And listen to Jesus' response. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Church family, Jesus, out of his eternal relationship with God, he makes God known to us. To see the Son is to see and to know the Father. I thank God for the blessing of living on this side of the cross. For the blessing of living on this side of the cross that we have the complete and the full picture of God in Jesus. There's nothing else needed. We don't have to wonder what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see and you know God the Father. So let me close with this one question. I always want to say, how does this apply to our life? How can we take this away? Here's the question that I want you to ask yourself this week. And that is this. Where are you looking for satisfaction? Where are you looking for meaning or joy outside of Jesus? Will you ask this week for God to shine the light of Jesus into the dark areas of your heart? to shine the light of Jesus into the dark areas of your mind? And will you ask him to give you a willingness to place your life, your loved ones, your career, your time, even the plans that you have made for your own life, and will you fully and completely surrender them to God? Because remember, as God becomes greater in our life, we become less. And as he becomes greater and we become less, we will then understand that our ultimate joy comes when we completely surrender to his will for our life. Will you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the words of John the Baptist ring true today. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, right now I pray if there is anyone here in this room that has never confessed their sin to you, that has never trusted in the gift of your salvation that you have given to us through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. That today they would turn from their sinful self and they would call out to you and they would ask for you to redeem them, knowing that you are awaiting, longing, desiring to welcome them, to adopt them into your family. Lord, for those of us who have trusted you as Savior, would you remind us of our worth and our value, not in what we do for a living, not by what anyone says about us, but by the fact that we are a child of yours. May we live that victorious life, longing not for what anything this world can give us, but eagerly awaiting for that time that we are reunited with you, that we spend eternity worshiping and celebrating who you are. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.